You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. The following episode was originally recorded as part of our Access 2020 event and features a panel discussion with leading private equity investors led by one of our partners, Trip Davis. All right, well, let's go ahead and get things started. To all joining us today, thank you. My name is Trip Davis. I'm a partner with Seven Mile Advisors. Welcome to Access. It's hard to believe we are already at October 20th of 2020. What a crazy and tumultuous year it's been. Although many lives and businesses and transactions have been dramatically changed over the course of the year, the old adage that the market never sleeps is alive and well. Thankfully, deals have continued getting done. And today we brought together an esteemed panel of private equity investors to talk a bit about what they've seen in some of those transactions and how they're considering value of your business in the wake of the COVID environment. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce the team involved. First of all, we have Jeff Vogel from Port Square Capital Partners. Second, Yvette Shubatia from Audax Group. And third is Jared Ruger from Bertram Capital. Gentlemen, I'd love to give you each a few moments to introduce yourselves, share a bit about your firm, and set up today's discussion. Jeff, why don't we start with you? Great. Thanks, Trip. Jeff Vogel, partner with Court Square Capital. Uh, I've been with the firm 16 years, all focused on technology investing, primarily software and tech services. In Court Square, for those of you who are not familiar, we're a middle market private equity firm investing out of a fund that's roughly 3 billion ish in size. We focus across multiple verticals, not just technology, but we have folks that specialize in industrials, healthcare, and business services. But yeah, look, very excited to be on the panel today with, with Trip and the rest of the colleagues here and excited to get, get going. Thanks, Jeff. Ivesu. Hey, guys. Ivesu Bhatti. I'm a managing director here at Audax. Been with the firm for 10 years and I lead our technology practice out here. A little bit about the firm. We are based out of Boston. We're currently investing out of our sixth fund, which is around $4.5 billion of investable capital. Very similar to Fort Square. We invest across a variety of industries and excited to be here and talk to you all. And last but not least, Jared. Yeah, hi, I'm Jared Ruger, partner with Bertram Capital. We're based in the Bay Area, about halfway between San Francisco and Palo Alto. We've been around for 14 years. I've been here since day one. I lead our business services effort, which is largely a tech-enabled services vertical. We also have a consumer practice and an industrials practice. In many ways, we look like everyone else. We're uh, investing from our fourth fund. Our unique approach is that we have taken all the resources that most firms invest in operating partners or executives or consultants to support their businesses. And we've invested all those dollars and resources into an internal technology team called Bertram Labs, where we have 20 software developers, five online marketing experts, and a data science team that assist our companies as they uh, grow and evolve. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate 
each of you joining today. For those in the audience, these three funds and these three guys are some of the most capable and active in the middle market today. We are grateful to have them join our event. Really appreciate their time. With that said, it's uh, been a crazy environment out there. And and one of the things business owners are, are trying to figure out is not just what their company's worth, but is the cost of capital in this environment worth it? And so when I'm thinking about that question through the lens of an owner, Jared, why don't, why don't you talk a bit about which is more important to the business owner today? The cost of capital, whether that be equity and or debt, or the real compatibility with your capital provider, particularly as we see the aftermath of the environment that we've just come through? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think it also dovetails with some topics we'll discuss later around volume of deals in the market and activity in the market. But I I actually think we're seeing probably in the last four to six weeks, and maybe a little longer than that, investors become a lot more active. So ideally, that, that cost of capital for companies looking to partner with institutional partners is, is coming down as, as people are becoming more aggressive in their investing activities or similarly valuations may be increasing. So I think it's becoming more favorable for businesses to interact with, with the institutional investor community. But more directly to your question, this, as you said very astutely, this is a tumultuous environment that presents both challenges and opportunities. And I think those are still, there's a lot of unknown as we think about the next 6, 12, even 24 months. So to me, small differences in cost of capital or valuation, I think, are meaningfully outweighed by finding the right partner that shares your vision and strategy with regard to where you want to go with your business. I also think, you know, looking at their track record and talking to references and past executives and teams that they've partnered with to understand how they react when there is, you know, demand contraction, how they react when the market, you know, the broadly speaking, the market drops and that presents, you know, challenges, but also opportunities with regard to M&A and other investment potential or investment opportunities. Are they going to be really defensive? Or are they going to be aligned with you in terms of taking advantage of those situations? So long story short, long answer to your question, but I think that partnership alignment and goal and strategy alignment is, is far more important to me. Great points, all the above. Jeff, is that you? Any, uh, any follow-up to that you might want to add? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think some of this trip is going to lead into to some of the other questions I think we'll, we'll cover today that I'm happy, happy to yeah. go into. But I think a lot of this is you're really just dependent upon the, the strengths of the underlying businesses and, and good businesses you know, we found have, have largely been unaffected, whether or not it's you know, wherever they're playing in the market. Those businesses are active and from an, uh, a standpoint of backing for equity or debt, you know, you're just seeing a lot of uh, activity at this point to Jared's point. So. I think that's it. Great points, all the above. And really, the, the idea of cost of capital leads into the next series of questions and, and, and really thoughts around how the world of leverage and underwriting of transactions have changed over 2020. I, I know that 
you know, we as a firm in particular, you know, ran into a bit of a buzzsaw back in the month of March, you know, where we had multiple transactions teed up for close, um, only to run into some last minute challenges, particularly through the eyes of lenders. And so I was just curious, you know, how you've seen that market perspective and the approach to underwriting change from March through to today and, and how you see that unfolding here over the next few months. You know, curious if Jared and Aveshu have seen something similar. I think a lot of it just depends on certainly timing. I think for for everybody here on this call, mid-March and April was a pretty scary time. And I think across the board, for the most part, everybody had started to look inward, whether or not that's into your portfolio, into your own company, your operations, if you're a lender, into your portfolio of your you know, lending assets. To ultimately just to, uh, understand, hey, what's what's the stability there? And you know, it's pretty opaque in terms of visibility for the future of, of each of the businesses. And what we tended to find, at least within our portfolio, you know, knock on wood, that that there was a, a fair, strong amount of resilience. And in reality, what we were seeing out there is it really just depends on the vertical exposure that you had. And the particularly volatile ones, whether it's oil and gas or, or travel and hospitality, clearly those ones are going to be more affected than others. But uh, you know, largely a lot of the lending and even equity underwriting was put on pause in, in mid-March and, and April. There were multiple transactions that we were working on on the buy side. There was a couple founder-based businesses that we were pursuing. And in addition, we were even potentially preparing a company for, for sale and for exit. All of that, we basically put on pause for about a month. And then April came along. And, and for the most part, all of our businesses had really strong Aprils. From there, we, we continued the momentum. And what was first and foremost important is that your employees were healthy and that the business, everybody was taking the right precautions, whether it's work remote or, or whatnot. As soon as we sort of just made sure that there was some stability there, we got right back to it. And as a fund, we closed a new platform investment in the summer. We acquired both of those businesses at no difference in valuation. And from a lending standpoint, the direct lenders had come back to market, again, for terms that were substantially on top of the terms that were available prior to uh, to the one-month downturn, if you call it that. So the good news is, is today, the, the debt markets we're seeing are, are wide open, You know, albeit, obviously, there are certain verticals that are still challenged. But in ones like you know technology, broadly speaking, horizontals of, of technology and, and other tech-enabled services and other business services that we've seen, if anything, the businesses that have been resilient through something like this and have grown, arguably even accelerated, you're seeing those businesses trade for a premium than where they were even pre-COVID. So it's a real interesting effect that we're seeing out there. Certainly, we've been trying to test downside cases for investments and underwriting, and no better one in, in a short time period to see how resilient your business is than what just happened in the last several months. So, so that's really what we've seen. And right now, you know, look, we're being particularly aggressive for new investments. And we were fortunate enough that of the two companies we bought, and we also sold a business, it was all for values that were certainly above where we would have figured they would have traded. So it's been, for the most part, a, a great outcome for us, all things considered. Good insight. I, I'd have to say that that our reality largely reflected yours. You know, March was difficult. 
we got some of those deals back on track and closed in April and then really picked up steam in June and July and are now you know, on, on track to exceed you know, last year. With that said, it, it seems like everyone's reality is unique to their environment. In some cases, it's your geography, where you can see me standing in the office today with you know, about half of our team here working together. It may be uh, your business model or other things. I mean, we've seen that there's a significant difference in how companies are being viewed between a, a COVID negative impact, you know, what we think of as a COVID, COVID neutral impact you know, versus a COVID positive or pandemic proof company. You mentioned that you were seeing a few deals that you know, had not been significantly impacted through this COVID environment trade at significant premiums. Investu, how have you seen kind of those three buckets of companies treated through your lens, both as a, a platform buyer, an add-on buyer, and a portfolio company seller? That's a good way to phrase it. There's three different hats or three different views to the thing. If you look at a platform company or add-on, something that you're already in, what you're generally trying to do is to make it more mission critical, drive more growth and make, make the product more sticky and more diversified, which is generally lines up well with what would be pandemic proof. So you kind of continue down that path. These are all illiquid investments. You are tied at the hip. You're going to keep working on it. So to the extent you have an opportunity to, you are going to try to continue to try to make your existing portfolio more and more pandemic proof. And that's true before, during, and after, because those characteristics are the same. It's growth, it's recurring revenue, it's more mission critical, and the growth can be organic or inorganic. So that's so that kind of theme has only continued or accelerated because that's what people are generally trying to do anyway. And then from a platform perspective, what we've seen is basically, if you look over the last 20 years, you know, you had the dot-com bust, you had 2008 or nine, you have this, you kind of don't know where something's going to pop up from. You have no idea. But what you do know is as long as there's secular growth in your industry or the space or the business, worst case, you'll have a slowdown in growth, but you won't stand still or you won't take a step back. So what we've seen is that is ultimately one of the best barriers. You can, you can plan for a dot-com crash, but you can't plan for a pandemic at the same time. But what you can plan for is a lot of secular growth, right? So there has been a general movement and this was ongoing before, but I think it's particularly pronounced now towards growth. And you look at public market valuations, private market valuations, especially now that there's a real framework as you think about valuing growthier assets. So I think that that's been the trend and the shift that's accelerated and that's generally continued for us as we've looked at businesses. But I would classify growth as both organic and inorganic opportunities. So there was... During this time frame and back in 08 and 09 too, we were we have been and continue to be incredibly aggressive as we think about finding opportunities for value creation inorganically. And then as we look at new platforms, there is more of a bias to being able to underwrite that than there may have been in the past. So that's at least our perspective. It's all good points. We we've seen each of those reflected in our own realities because of our positioning. There seems to have been an acceleration, if anything, when considering, you know, high quality companies in some form of digital transformation, driving change within existing industry. Jared, when we look at 
our position, look, we're not a big bank. You guys have access to a deal flow from investment banks all over the country and all over the world. How would you describe the market volume or trend of deal flow coming out of investment banks over this year? We have a very proactive business development effort at Bertram. So I think we have a decent finger on the pulse of the market. And I would say coming out of of late March and April, we saw a very dramatic reduction in deal flow. And that persisted through much of the, the summer, I would say, where we were really trying to find a needle in a haystack. You know, the, the deal flow that was coming to us was of, I would say, meaningfully diminished quality. And you only had a, a small, small number of businesses that had pretty much launched processes prior, immediately prior to the onset of COVID that were weathering the storm well and continuing to perform. And those got a ton of attention because they were so scarce. That kind of environment, I would say, continued until, as I kind of referenced earlier, by late August, early September, when we saw meaningful increase in, in volume coming out of the investment banking channel. And I, and I think that was a lot of businesses that got through you know, March, April without any meaningful impact and recognized that they were, were relatively unique and started to prepare to go to market and, and the timing just aligned for them to hit the market kind of in, in the September timeline. And you know, then you had then you had the overlay of potential tax changes in 2021 that caused people to say, you know, we're gonna push the button and, and work to get this done in 2020. So we have on our side definitely seen a meaningful increase in exciting a high quality deal flow. And I, I'd say this is probably a period where we've had as many attractive opportunities as we've had pre-COVID and, and probably even at a heightened level right now. So I do think sponsors, private equity firms are busy right now and almost to the verge of it you know, becoming easily distracted, right? It's, it's tough to get attention because there are a number of things that are, are exciting for them. Makes sense. I mean, that it's interesting. You, you talk about the continued increase in volume, the continued identification of quality, and kind of the, the different attention levels. You know, those deals are getting in, in today's environment versus the one back in March and April. That environment has also presented an interesting buy side opportunity for private equity groups in particular. I put a question to each of you just to answer through your own lens because. Although each of you are established private equity groups, you all have kind of a slightly different angle on the marketplace. And so as you're thinking through your firm and portfolio and and balancing the need to invest in new platforms and grow via acquisitions in a downtrend environment, how do you balance that need to put money to work with this almost back of the mind perception that some may think buyers are taking advantage of a of a challenged environment. I'd say I can jump in. My, my only comment to that, and again, Jared, I'm curious as to your thoughts. I think we've largely passed the take advantage of point in the market. And at this point, you know, businesses that are coming to market for sale, there's generally a reason why. And they're coming because they're, at a, they're selling up a point of strength. And we're not really seeing a 
any sort of diminishing value or a discount that they would be, we'd be taking advantage of, if anything, arguably a premium. Perhaps that there are other areas where that's happened. We did buy a portfolio company earlier this summer, and we were able to take advantage of that because the process broke, and we were still willing to stand at the value that we were at before. So that certainly was a buying opportunity earlier this summer. But it was with an established firm that we had already known and a fund that we had, had built a relationship with. So I don't really truly think we took advantage of anything other than the fact that we were still there at the value and the process broke. But really what we're seeing now, to Jared's point, is post-Labor Day, there is a rush of folks that are trying to get out. And whether it's because of tax implications or not, they're, they're for the most part, very high quality businesses and they're going to go for high quality prices. Yeah. And what I'd add is, for us at least, you're not delivering. We have a responsibility to deliver returns to our investors. The returns that our investors demand are off us are not really going to come from a slightly depressed view of price. It's going to come from adding value to the business and supporting the business. So, and it takes two sides, takes takes two hands to clap. If if the seller sees an opportunity, like we have a 70-person group that can support a whole host of initiatives, et cetera, that's inside. If that may make sense for some companies they will come and sell to us. And again, it goes back to what's more valuable is not the cost of capital, but the partnership that you have and the quality of the capital that you have. And each person needs different things and each firm offers different things. As long as that fit is there, a trade will happen and it will happen at a fair price. But if it's very hard for us to deliver the return that we expect of ourselves or we expect our investors expect off us, by making all the money on the buy. So we don't think like that. It's more about finding opportunities where we can be a good partner and support the business using whatever tools we have at our disposal. And each one of us comes at it a different way. But that's really what the question is. And that's why I think you know deal making and investing has been relatively sort of unscathed at this point. It took a dip for a little bit relative to a lot of other situations or a lot of, a lot of other industries. Yeah, I'd, I'd even argue in the world of tech-enabled services and software, it seems like more and more buyers have come into this middle marketplace than existed prior to COVID, recognizing some of the trends within those particular industry categories. And as recently as today, you saw announcements of major former corporate development professionals at places like Microsoft and elsewhere moving into private equity to help take funds that were not traditionally focused in tech in that direction, or at least to diversify into that industry niche. We're seeing more volume and more interested in deal flow than we did pre-COVID. So that's, that's good to hear you guys are, are seeing a similar reflection in your world. Things are a little bit different today, but not that long ago. Boy, was there a lot of concern and misunderstanding and need for PPP funding. How, and and many of the companies that we work with and know have taken PPP loans as as part of maintaining their workforce and continuing to grow into this environment. How is that funding being treated when valuing a company today? And how are banks treating the idea of forgiveness in conjunction with private equity transactions? Jared, could you take a moment and just address some thoughts around that? I was going to say, just related to your prior question around, you know, some of the, the distressed opportunities, you know, in late March and early April, as we were, you know, shoring up our portfolio, we were kind of dusting off our, our restructuring and 
distressed knowledge sets in preparation for what we thought would be some assets that would be in fragile states and would require a lot of support and help and would be looking for partners. We really did not see many of those, honestly. And I I think it is, to a large extent, a testament to the, the government stimulus programs, as well as lender flexibility and willingness to make concessions because we just didn't, you know, we saw one or two situations like that. But for the most part, companies that were really impacted just kind of looked inward and were working on their own challenges without a a gun to their head from a a financial standpoint or transactional standpoint. So, and I know we shared notes on this prior to this call. I think everyone's had experience with PPP situations, but our experience has been Uh, that we've seen a number of companies that have taken PPP loans, understandably, you know, even companies that were performing well, there was a lot of uncertainty about the future. And so they were taking every lifeline they could to protect themselves, their employees, their shareholders, etc., which I totally understand. And as those companies in our orbit have pursued transactions, I've not yet seen a buyer willing to assume a PPP loan. We're not willing to do it on the Bertram side, and and I've seen others not willing to do it as well. And those companies, in in my experience, and this goes up until probably 30 days ago, have tried to negotiate and and apply for forgiveness on those loans. And the lenders just aren't, and the, the program, I guess, as a whole, in my experience at least, has not been prepared and ready to administer those forgiveness applications. And so the companies have been left to decide whether they want to repay the the loan on their own and pursue a transaction or not pursue a transaction. In every instance that I've been involved with, they've they've repaid the loan and gone forward with the transaction. So that's my experience, but I know everyone else here has had a lot of experience with this as well. Jeff, I saw yeah. you take off mute. Would you like to weigh in on that as well? Yeah, everything Jared said is is exactly in line with our experience as well. And and I'll use just a direct example of two of the businesses. We bought two businesses into a company and sold all three of them, including our business at the same time. And what we were actually even willing to do is sign the the transaction and it was a delayed close to get the financing. We're able to at least sign up to say, okay, guys, we'll we'll sign the deal now to the extent that, and we're going to close two months from now, to the extent that you can apply for forgiveness and get it forgiven, prior to close, have at it. But as we get to that close day, which was last week, to the extent that you haven't received forgiveness five days prior to the close, you got to pay it back. Obviously, that was a very difficult conversation because those were sizable loans that they took out. And, and to Jared's point earlier, completely understand why they did that. But the businesses largely were unaffected. And from the risk standpoint, the real reason is there's reputational risk from our LPs. And Jared, I bet you obviously feel free to hop in as to why private equity firms are taking a firm stance of not accepting the, the PPP loans. But there's a lot of regulatory reasons for why we wouldn't. And there's a reason why our, our portfolio companies weren't available to apply for PPP loans for that very reason. And so we would take on this liability that likely would not be forgiven because it would now be owned by PE funds. So it's a challenged conversation with founders that have taken these loans, but one that in each of the cases uh, directly, they ultimately ended up paying it back 
if they wanted to sell their business. Now, obviously, you don't have to sell your company and you can hold on to the PPP loan and wait until it's forgiven, whatever that is. But if you're looking to exit, it's going to be something that will be top of mind for the PE sponsor. All great points. And, and we've seen similar realities reflected in our clients, although with some positive exceptions where loan forgiveness you know, is a process that is unfolding at some banks. We've seen that as a contingent portion of transaction structures that have worked out to our clients' benefit. It is starting to move, just not as quickly as most people would like to see it. Yeah, speaking of fundraising, you know, you guys depend on limited partners providing you capital to put to work in effective ways to grow value. How's COVID affected capital raising for new private equity funds? Ivesha, you want to you want to start out with that one, and then we'll uh, we'll go around the horn. Yeah, no, I think as you think about fundraising, it still is, especially with the typical LP base that all of us have, it's still a little bit more in person and relationship oriented, and that's a component of it. So I think for existing GPs or existing funds that have been around, we've been around for 20 years, all, everyone around the table has been around for a while, those existing relationships are carrying through and we're seeing continued appetite to invest behind and invest behind us. And as you think about newer GPs or newer funds, having those relationships is a little bit harder to define. So I think what we've at least seen in the market is less newer names coming into the market, but existing names continuing to fundraise pretty much on the same pace that they had. And I don't think that that's that's more on just the ability to actually get on the plane and talk to people and meet with people. So I'm assuming that's going to come back soon enough. But at least around for us, there hasn't been any slowdown at all, as you think about our ability to raise funds, especially as, you, as we're now not on the other side of but we've seen the performance of our portfolio through it, which has been absolutely fine. For us, we were very fortunate, you know, knock, knock on wood here, that we, we had our final close for our most recent fund in January. So it was perfect timing right, right before COVID. I can't quite comment on how that would have been affected had we been closing later this year. To Vetri's point, though, you do certainly see a lot of the other funds or brand name funds that are established that are out there that were raising record-breaking funds this year. So it goes back to Jared's point of, you know, the LPs, there's going to be a heightened scrutiny that they're going to put on any of, of your portfolios. And to the extent your businesses have proven resilient, that's going to speak to the strength of the sponsor that they're going to dedicate their capital to. All good feedback. And now I'd, I'd like for you guys to kind of put the hat of business owners or stakeholders on the, on the other side of the fence on and think about what advice you would have for those that were considering a sale or some sort of a strategic alternative here over the next 12 months. What are key attributes or, or things that they should be focusing on between now and some sort of a transactional event? Yeah, no, I think one of the key things, and it, it's actually not a different hat because we're also selling businesses and it's a similar set of counterparties and buyers are buyers. So I can talk about how we're thinking. But I think one of the key things to do is to be able to articulate what happened over the last six months. Good, bad, ugly, whatever it was, just being able to truly articulate it and articulate what you were able to do to an extent what you would have done differently and how that would have impacted the outcomes as they stand right now is very important. And that goes across any industry, things that are affected positively, things that are affected positively temporarily or not, or to the downside. That is incredibly important. And then that's 
just top of mind. Outside of that, I'd say it's the typical stuff. You want to be in a situation where you have a need or you have a need for an accelerator that someone else can bring to the table. And as long as you see that and that party has the value that they can support you with, in my view, you're always better off having a smaller piece of a bigger pie than a bigger piece of a smaller pie. That's kind of how folks should think about it. If this is you're at a point in your business that you feel that there's an opportunity to accelerate and you can have some support to either drive more certainty or a different outcome, you should be thinking about finding a partner. And the typical prep around being able to understand your business, articulate your business very clearly is is very important. And that's obviously something that you guys do very well in advising those folks. That's what I would just say at a pretty high level. Thank you. Yeah, for me, uh, yeah, I'm happy to, this is an antiquated by at this point and, and maybe bad analogy. I kind of think about it in the sense of a car going from a flat road to a hill. And that early stages of the hill, this goes back to stick shift driving, which I guess nobody does anymore. But you're in the same gear, you're still moving fast, but you're you're starting to slow down. And then you, you downshift and you feel like you've really got some material traction and and uh, ability to sustain that speed. I mean, th- that's how I think about it. I mean, I think businesses right now need to be able to very clearly describe, you know, the demand drivers in their market and in their company. If you're kind of, you know, living off the fumes of prior periods and don't really know what's going to happen next month or in the next few months, I think that's really challenging because you're going to face heightened scrutiny around your pipeline and, and opportunities on the near-term horizon from a demand standpoint. So I think it's really important to have that grounding and that visibility and, and granularity to be able to convey to a buyer because everybody's nervous, right? Every, nobody knows what's going to happen over the next three to six months. And the greater confidence that you can convey, the better. It's an obvious statement, but I think it's even more pronounced right now. Good. Thanks. Jeff, final thoughts? I completely agreed with both Tavesh and Jared. If anything, another way to phrase it is just command of your business. Look, there's going to be... We had a huge disruption this year. Over the course of any investment horizon for us, let's call it five years, there's bound to be another disruption that's going to happen. What's very important for any investor that's coming into a business is that I'm backing a management team that has command of their business and they don't have the perfect ability to predict what is going to happen, but they can demonstrate that in previous disruptions, this is how we reacted. This is how we were, we were able to weather the storm because we had this level of visibility on the sales side. We knew X amount of deals were pushed. We were tracking it and all of those came back or we want more. These, these are what accelerated. Or this allowed us to take a fresh look at our business, one of our businesses, and ultimately ended up on the revenue side largely unaffected, but they took it as an opportunity to find $5 million in synergies or you know, efficiencies, I should say. In their business, they just said, why aren't we doing this better? And that's incredible to see. And when you're an, another investor that's going to partner with that management team, you look at that and say, all right, here are guys that basically were proactive and trying to find ways of how can I improve my business so that it can react to future disruptions that much better. Great points. I mean, we, we've definitely seen a divergence in companies that bunkered down versus appropriately attacked into the storm. Yeah, the outcomes for many of those businesses have been dramatic. 
So we're coming up on the end of time today. With that said, a few of the participants on the conference today have submitted a few questions. So guys, I'm the lob a handful out there. And if you like, I'll pick someone to start it and we'll go from there. So one of the questions here is about how companies get valued and what's more important. Is it growth or profitability? When you guys are looking at new platform investments, what catches your eye first and why? I'm happy to, to jump in here. I, I think, I mean, this is where I think partner like you trip is really valuable because I think this answer is going to vary depending on who you're talking to. And so having someone in your corner that can really provide that optimal matchmaking is really important. You didn't pay me to say that, by the way, but I... Next beer's on me. All three of us would probably have different answers to this question. I think for us, it's, you know, profitability is always, you know, EBITDA is a really important driver in our valuation methodology. Growth obviously helps, but you know margins and sustainability of EBITDA are are critical for us. So we're admittedly probably on the more you know traditional buyout end of the spectrum. I'm sure there are investors that you know well, Trip don't care as much about EBITDA. They want to know what the next three or four years look like in terms of expansion, and that that drives their investment strategy a lot more. So I think it's a tough one to to answer for the quote unquote market. I completely agree with Jared. It- I would answer that by yes to all of the above. We want growth and profitability, but that's not fair. I think you're going to want an advisor like Trip. I'll give him another commercial as well, because ultimately there are partners that would be right for your business, whatever your circumstances. To Jared's point, we're growth investors. We're not going to invest into distressed businesses. There are companies that would do that, but we're also not you know, a VC type firm or a growth equity firm that is typically paying a high revenue multiple for a business that's break even. That totally makes sense. If the opportunity for that company is to be able to grow 50 to 100% a year, take advantage of that. And there are the right partners for you that specialize in businesses of that profile. And then there's other, there's other ones that are probably more aligned with, you know, where Jared and I are, are where You've got great growth and you may great growth to us maybe in 10 to 20 percent, but you've also got an inflection point of opportunity in front of you of M&A or further investment in R&D or in sales expansion. And you have multiple levers that you have to decide, hey, what do I do with my business and how do I take it to the next level? Then there are other private equity firms or sponsors that pattern match with that, that need and demand quite well. And for what I know of Bertram and, and Audax, I think all three of us would probably fit that profile to a T, but it really depends on your partner and everybody's different. So you got to do your, your homework and do your, your diligence, just like they're doing that in your business. All great points and additional questions come in that seem to be feeding off this idea. Ibeshu, I'll, I'll just add two additional angles to the previous question and maybe you can address it through your own lens. So as you're thinking through what's most important to you, growth or profitability, there's some other folks out there that are interested in, okay, forget whether it's growth or profitability. We're not trying to juxtapose those two parameters. What are the top three things you're looking for in a business that you ultimately acquire? Sure. And again, this is going to line up well with what Jared and, and Jeff just said. Everyone's looking for something different because everyone's playing to their strengths. We believe that we're good in certain situations, so we look for that. Other people look for different things. And again, 
that's where someone like you can come in to direct sort of the right investors to the right opportunity and the other way around. As we sit here, just one point on the growth versus profitability, I think one thing I completely agree with everything that they said. Ultimately, we do need a view of underlying unit economics and be clear that those unit economics are positive and profitable so that you can clearly articulate that growth versus profit trade-off in the business. That is, for people who can play on different ends of the spectrum, which everyone's expanding and we are too, we want to be able to articulate that growth versus profit trade-off. And that typically lies in the unit economics of the business, either the gross margin level or the sales productivity level. But as we think about the three things, the first thing that's incredibly important is, frankly, the team. The team is, you're going to be working with someone for years. You're going to be tied at the hip for years, and you want to be working with a team that you get along with socially, personally, professionally, and someone that generally wants to row in the same direction that you do with healthy tension. You don't want to get involved in a situation where you want to go north and the other guy wants to go east. That's never going to end well. So that's the team and the direction and vision, and that needs to line up. That's incredibly the second thing is it's kind of the sandbox. Like we have our sandbox that where we play, we're not, we're not a venture capital firm. We're not a distressed firm. Things need to fall within that sandbox. And there's different things that we all look at, which is which are kind of effectively bright lines that you need to understand. And then the third thing for us is kind of we're not really investing, thinking about what the business is worth today. What we're trying to do is develop a view of what the business can be worth five years from now. And as part of that is how do we kind of help support and drive that? And how do we get from point A to point B either faster with higher certainty or get past point B during our investment period? And that can come in through different things. Every firm has different capabilities. We focus on inorganic growth, supporting inorganic growth. We focus on a certain set of organic opportunities and being able to line that up with, hey, we see the opportunity to support the organization with these things that will accelerate value creation for us. Because this is a very this is a market and different people, it's not like everyone's going to have a very proprietary look at a business or be able to fundamentally misprice a business or something like that. It really is about what you can do with the business and when you're looking five years out. So I'd say those are the three things that we're thinking about at a high level. But I know, uh, Jared, Jeff, whatever you you guys would like to add to that. I agree with everything you said. I think for us, you mentioned this, but for us, it's probably a little bit more pronounced, which is we're looking for areas of the business that have not been optimized. And that's that's always a tricky dance, right? Because you don't want to you know, admit too much vulnerability or weakness as a seller. But we do look for situations where we can invest incrementally or, or meaningfully to unlock opportunity that hasn't been harnessed yet. So you, you have to do that in a delicate manner so that you don't look incompetent, but you admit you know areas where there's room for improvement. But to your point, I totally agree. The market's efficient. We're all trying to find the components of a business that are yet to be fully harnessed that we feel like we have history and track record of successfully executing on and by nature of that can underwrite and see growth and opportunity there. From our perspective at Court Square, I mean, number one is management and number two, I think is management. And then number three is what, what can you do with the business? But in reality, if I looked at the successful deals over the last 15 years of our fund, the one trend across all of those businesses that were fantastic outcomes isn't necessarily 
hey, you had a business that was growing at 20% or you had the best, the best end market. It was all across the board. Those were the best management teams. And so for us, there's plenty of good businesses out there, but there's fewer and fewer just excellent stellar management teams. And when you get that right, it doesn't really matter the quality of the business or where it is, the management team is going to make a great outcome for you. And then to what you said earlier, for us, though, it is very much an aspect of what can we do with this business under our ownership? How can we drive growth? How can we improve it? How can we improve the efficiency or profitability of the company so that ultimately at exit, you've improved your exit opportunity, you've improved your exit value? Because ultimately, we're all financial sponsors. We have to exit at some point, unfortunately. For some of our better businesses, we still have to exit them. But what is it that we can do that positions us that much more so for a strong exit? And uh, the alignment with the management team and the strategy is everything. Great feedback from each of you. Thank you for that. I'll wrap things up with one parting question. You know, each of you are looking for, for key management teams. And those management teams have to make difficult decisions around how the companies run and who they hire to work with them and when they go to market. So in addition to hiring the best damn investment banking team in the market today, what other good decisions are management teams making that ultimately lead to great transactions? Jared, you're the only one off mute. I'll start with you. That was an unrepresentative move by me, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Gosh, it's a, it's a good and tough question. I'm trying to think what comes to mind first. I, I think first of all, I would say back to the management team point, putting in place the key players, you know, and, and maybe investing early in those areas of potential weakness to shore up your team and have as, as good a team as you can going into that process versus saying, we have some softness in this functional area and we probably need to upgrade there when you're talking with buyers would be one thing. Investing in the preparation work to really have command of your financials, your business drivers, your operating metrics, and show, be able to demonstrate to people that you manage based on metrics and have all that operational data in your command, I think is really important. Those would be the two that, that come to mind most, most quickly, but I'll, I'll cede the floor to the smarter people. I'll hop on top of that. And with some of the comments, Jared, you had made earlier, as well as the rest of us, but it goes back to command of the business. Ultimately, great management teams, they have insight and visibility and transparency as to what's happening in their business, why it's positive or negative, and why going forward, you're going to continue to have that level of visibility and reaction. That can come through a whole number of different areas. It's actual human process that you've put in place with the rest of your management team. On the sales side, if it's you know, rigorous uh, pipeline tracking and analysis. On the engineering side, it's consistent, agile delivery on your software and nailing all of these deliveries on a customer support standpoint. It is best-in-class service and renewal rates. I mean, across the board, generally speaking, the tight management teams and the ones that are most successful for us are that have just incredible command of their business, no matter what aspect of the platform it is. And ultimately, everyone wants transparency and visibility. Nobody likes to feel in the dark, whether that's the management team or the sponsor or the employee or the customer. And so all of that applies here. And so the, the greater command you have, the greater visibility and transparency you have in your business, the better positioned you're going to be 
not only to run that business, but if for whatever time you go to market and you want to, uh, to find the right partner for you, you can answer all of the questions that they're likely going to have for your business today. And then going forward post-acquisition, when you're working with them to build the strategy and, and a lot of the elements that you've aligned up front are areas for improvement or areas of opportunity for growth, you can react to that in an educated manner and with full transparency and alignment with your partner. Thanks, Jeff. Investor, anything you'd like to add in closing? I completely agree with what Jeff and Jared said. I think ultimately a transaction comes about as via communication. The whole process of consummating a transaction is you're communicating your business, your weaknesses, and your strengths. So things that allow you to communicate well, which fundamentally comes from having command of your business, being honest about where you're good, where you're bad, and what, what you need help with. As long as you can communicate it well, there's a partner for everyone that's out there. There's different classes of investors. There's a thousand different investors. As long as you communicate it clearly and honestly and communicate it well, you'll be able to find the right partner for you. And that's really going back to the initial point. What matters more is the partner that you have, not the cost of capital. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Yveshu, Jeff, Jared, we really appreciate the time and insight. Emily and Ariel, thank you for making this possible. And to all of you joining us on this conference, we appreciate your interest. And if we were not able to address one of the questions that you had today, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Thanks to all. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 